So good afternoon, everyone. Glad you could join us for this session. Is everybody having a good time, learning a lot, meeting new people? Well, welcome. We're, again, we're glad you could join this session. This session, as you probably know, is titled Living Life to the Fullest, How Low Vision Occupational Therapy Can Help. And the session will last about an hour. And our speaker, Dana Arevich, who I will introduce formally in a minute or two, will be taking questions as she goes. So it's not going to be like she'll talk and then you'll answer or she'll ask questions later. It'll be interactive. Um, this session is being recorded. And if you are using an assisted listening device, please turn to channel two. And please make sure you silence your cell phone. And here's our introduction to Dana. Dana Arevich became an occupational therapist because she wanted to help others live successfully with disabilities. As an OT, she helps those living with visual impairments optimize their independence with daily activities in the inpatient and outpatient settings at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh. Dana has eight years of clinical experience, including additional training in low vision. She's published professional papers on improving the clinical care of those living with functional vision deficits. And she's won an award for creating a telehealth program for those with low vision. And finally, she's presented at many professional conferences. Interestingly, Dana has retinitis pigmentosa and incorporates her lived experiences into her work with others. And Dana enjoys finding creative solutions to problems, hiking, yoga, and spending time with her son. And if you want to be social, we encourage you to share what you're learning and your experiences on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and use the hashtag Visions2022. So please welcome Dana Arevich. Hi, everyone. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Okay. Can you hear me now? Okay, I'm just gonna hold this. My name is Dana, as Ben said, and I'm based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm an occupational therapist by training, and I also have RP, um, in case you care, CRB1. I was diagnosed when I was six, I'm now in my 30s. I still do have some useful vision, never driven. I do use a white cane for mobility, um, and things are definitely changing with my vision. So that's a little bit more about me as a person with a visual impairment. But my goals here today are to introduce you to the field of occupational therapy if you've never heard of it, make sure you understand what it is that OTs can offer you, how you can get OT care into your life if you need it, and just really kind of give you an idea of the scope of what people like me can do to help you make your life more successful. So there's a lot of people in the vision world who can help you live more independently. I'm a little bit different than those who are kind of housed in the community-based visual impairment setting. 
So if you're new to having vision loss, there's kind of two areas that you may encounter people who can help you with your everyday activities. There's the community-based settings where we have people like our VRTs, our vision rehab therapists, um, our teachers of the visually impaired, people like that. And in the medical system, you'll meet individuals like myself. So the way I differ is, in order to come to an occupational therapist, you do need a referral from a doctor. Could be your PCP, could be your ophthalmologist, could be your optometrist, but I do need a doctor's referral. I am able to bill insurance because of that. The reason is I don't just treat low vision. I treat any and all um, disabilities or impairments as they relate to impairing your ability to live your life. So if you have something like diabetes, which can also cause vision loss, I'm gonna work on all of the things that are causing you challenges. So maybe you've started to lose your balance because you have changes in sensation in your legs. Maybe you also are losing the sensation in your hands. So you cannot touch things to tell the difference between what they are. And in addition, you're also losing your vision. What I'm trained to do is kind of treat you as a whole person in light of all of the medical issues. And in addition, really tailor my treatment to what you want and need to do. I only care about the things that you care about. So in the hospital setting where I currently work, it's very basic things. So if you have an acute medical event, I work a lot with people through strokes. I'm working on basic skills like getting yourself dressed, bathed, toileting, using an arm, working with vision in that context. But in an outpatient setting where you're able to live at home, the goals are much higher and broader. They could be returning to work being able to use your remaining vision to read most effectively. How can we make your home safe? When it comes to vision, as a professional, my view is humans are hardwired to use our vision. It's just how our brain works. About a third of our brain is devoted to vision. So even though our vision is changing, we still just want to use it. And we're going to continue to try to use it until it's truly not functional. So my role is to kind of come in, get to know you and understand what's working with your vision, what's not, and how are we gonna change things? So I'm gonna look at the whole person. I may look at your balance. I may look at your thinking. I may look at your strength in your arms and your legs because all of these little pieces are going to help create a roadmap for you and your own individual life. When I think of vision, I more commonly work with people who have some remaining vision, but I'm also able to work with people who are um, completely blind and somewhere in between. Things I do to help people optimize vision are strategies you may already know. So adding contrast to your environment. Maybe you're starting to struggle to pour things into a cup, but if you're pouring black coffee into a white cup, that definition and contrast is all that you need to be more successful with that. Maybe you're starting to have a hard time reading your prescription label at home, but you're able to recall what prescriptions you have. And we can maybe use a really low-tech strategy like adding some rubber bands to your bottles so that you know the difference between your metoprolol and your amlodipine. Maybe you still need something a little bit more or you're really tech savvy. There's things from CVS and all of the other retail pharmacists now where if you cannot read your prescription label, you can ask for a free script talk. So this is a service provided through most major retail pharmacists. They'll have an R, I think it's an RDF card or RIF. Either way, it's a little microchip that they'll put on the bottom of your prescription label. 
you sign up for the service, and they give you a free electronic script talk reader. You just put your bottle over top of it, and it'll actually read the prescription label out to you, including what time of day you need to take your medication, your prescriber's information, all of that information that you would normally be able to read on your bottle in a non-visual um, format. So we're trying to work on where do you need visual strategies, where do you need non-visual strategies, let's find the things that work the best for you. A lot of what I'm gonna talk about today is safety. So what I wanna know is a little bit more about you guys. I'll ask some questions and then try to tailor what I'm talking about to the things that you guys are interested in. So again, everyday activities is what I work with. Um, everything from the basics, like I mentioned, getting dressed, getting around the home, getting around the community, driving, medication management, fall prevention, managing finances, any of those things, leisure hobbies, we kind of cover it all in occupational therapy. And I often work with my colleagues, the physical therapists, um, other professionals as well. We also do work with people in the community as we're able to, so your community blind and low vision providers. Every state hospital is a little bit different in how those two systems kind of interact. But I wanna know a little bit more about you guys. So please raise your hand if you have a visual impairment. Okay. How many people have been recently diagnosed, so maybe in the past three years? Okay, so most people here who have a visual impairment, this is something that you've had or known that you've had for more than three years. How many people here have more of a central visual impairment, so more of an um, issue with their, or with their macula, something color vision related, central vision? Okay, and then how many people have more peripheral vision related diseases like RP, glaucoma? Okay, so we have a few more of that. And then obviously there are people who have both, anyone with kind of facing both? Mm -hmm. Okay, and then how many people have noticed that their vision fluctuates throughout the day or based on activity? Yeah, so that's the big thing, right? Is that even if we can have this nice little category of where we maybe are facing our primary visual impairments, it changes. Can anyone like raise their hand and shout out times of day or activities that you're noticing within yourself where maybe your function isn't as good as it is at other times? Dusk. Dusk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lighting, any other things that you guys have noticed really impact how functional your remaining vision is? Yep, stress. Mm -hmm. Fatigue. Lighting. <laughs> you can't see in the dark either? Man. Yes. Exactly. Man, we people with visual impairment, we are so picky with our lighting. We are the, yeah, we might be the pleasant, very pleasant people, but we're awfully picky with our lighting. I'm the same way. So knowing what works for you is really key. So simple strategies for that. Transitions, especially transitions between bright light to low light or low light to bright light, right? Like you're just stopped in space for a minute and you don't know what's around you. Yes. 
And that's a time where we could be more likely to fall. So how can we manage that? What has worked for you guys to help with transitions between lighting, like going inside to outside or outside to inside? Well, I always seem to have to take my sunglasses off and mm -hmm. on depending on where I am. If mm -hmm. it's real bright, I have them on, but then it, it might block my vision from seeing something I should see. So it's been real hard with sunglasses. Yeah, so I'm going to repeat what you guys are saying over the mic for both the recording and everyone else in the room. Um, what our individual up front said is that sunglasses can be helpful, but they also aren't a panacea. They don't help with everything, right? Sometimes they're great, but there's this constant on-off, on-off. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So the transitions don't always help because they're helpful until you're waiting for them to get out of that transition state. Yeah. So things that I could offer as an occupational therapist, especially if you came into a clinic, is there are a rainbow of glare filters, which is a fancy word to say sunglasses. So knowing what your color preferences are, knowing what kind of lighting needs you have, and being able to layer them. Just like when we go into a conference center that's, you know, I don't know, probably 65 degrees and it's 95 degrees outside. You need to layer your light protection the same way you think about layering your clothes. So things that I would recommend are, number one, a hat. Find something that you like. Just get some of that sun and glare out of the top of your head, that's something that can be added on and off. I like to have sunglasses in my purse that are different colors, dif different shades, I should say, of the colors that I like. If you have more of a central vision impairment, typically you are seeking more contrast because you've lost that color vision. So it's more of the yellow spectrum that tends to help you. If you have more of a peripheral vision loss, you might like more grays or ambers or kind of more of your traditional sunglasses color, but you likely need something with a lot more color variation, grade variation than just the off-the-shelf sunglasses that you get that are just all black or no color. If you have migraines, if you're someone who's light sensitive and it causes kind of like an ocular migraine or something like that, kind of a rose-colored glass can often help with that. So there's a lot of different things, but even within this kind of idea of recommendations are there's no hard science. What I like about what I do is it's very much an art. It's getting to know you and what works for your body. So layering the our light layers, our light protection layers, can be really helpful. You can think about having more of a wraparound sunglass so that you're getting that full spectrum of protection. For me personally, I tend to wear my contacts just because it's easier for me to kind of change out my, my sunglasses. Um, I could go and get prescription glasses as well to kind of manage that. But for my visual needs, because I need to maximize my peripheral vision, my contacts give me just maybe half a degree more than my glasses do. So it's knowing what works for you. You guys also mentioned just in general lighting. When you're in the dark, you can't see. Neither can I. Hooray. So what can we do about that? There are things where we can actually use science to figure out what the best lighting is for you to do near tasks. So 
I have a tool in my clinic that's called the LexIQ. It's just a really fancy way to change the intensity of the light and to change the color of the light. So I might put something underneath that you can read that I've already done an assessment for and I know that it's the, you know, roughly the right size font for you. And then I'll have you play with these two little slider buttons. And the one slider changes how bright the light is, the other one changes the color. Are we going from a yellow white to a blue white and then a true natural white in between? And for some people, we can gain a couple lines of functional reading vision if I know the intensity and the color that you need and then I can teach you how many light bulbs, what kind of light do you need and where do we need to position that light for your reading so that you're more aware of the strategies you can incorporate into your home. In addition, and in your own home environment, things like having the proper window coverings, thinking about environmental glare. Do you have really shiny countertops or floors? And when the sun is bright, that stuff is just reflecting into your eyes and that's causing you issues. So just kind of looking at lighting from that whole picture perspective, incorporating it into your life. You guys also mentioned fatigue. When you're tired, our vision gets worse. Does anyone kind of understand why that is? Why is it that our eyes are linked to our energy level? I was wondering that myself. Okay. So, remember what I said at the beginning? About a third of our brain is devoted to vision. Vision is thinking. Thinking is vision. They're all related. And then throw in a vision deficit. Guess what? Every single one of us who has a vision deficit, we rely on our brain to make up for it. How many things do you do from memory that maybe someone else doesn't have to do because they can see everything in front of them? How many times are you doing something in your home and you just know where things are supposed to be laid out? When you have control of the environment, you do things much quicker, much more effectively because you already have a mental map of what you need to do, where those items are placed, etc. And for me, it's more of a, pl a placement issue of where I'm scanning to. But the same thing, if I gave you a familiar activity, um, reading something that you read every day, maybe I do hand you a prescription bottle and you know what the prescription is and maybe your central vision is a little bit off, but you know what medications you have. So you can kind of fill in the blanks. But then you go to the doctor's office and they give you a brand new prescription bottle with a brand new prescription. You may not be able to fill in the blanks. Things you can do to help that, number one, Every strategy that I talk about needs to come from you. You need to control it, you need to own it. You know what's gonna work in your lifestyle, what you're going to remember, what's gonna feel right for you. You know, even when it comes to something like a white cane, I can't, that's an orientation and mobility specialist's job to prescribe and make sure you know how to use it. But that's a choice that you have to make. If it's something you're willing to use and incorporate, we're gonna work with that. If you're not ready for it, then I'll educate you on why maybe you should seek out O&M, but let's work with what we got. If someone gives me something that has things laid out and I didn't do it, I'm not gonna remember that strategy as well. Um, thinking about when you have the most energy during the day. So maybe you know that your vision gets worse as you get tired, as you go throughout the day, you get more tired. So if you need to do a highly visual task, you just strategize and you do it earlier in the day. You don't save that for the end of the evening. Or you give yourself little rest breaks throughout the day so that when you do need to get to that activity, you feel like you have maybe not your best vision, 
but much better than your worst vision to help you through. So we talked about kind of having changes in our vision based on fatigue, lighting, and also we just talked about glare, things like that. And all those things can kind of impact our safety. So I'm going to talk about the primary areas that I think of when I think of safety risks, but I want to hear from you guys too. So as a therapist, when I'm thinking of high-risk activities, medication management, fall prevention, driving, those are the top three activities that compose the biggest risk to us. Do any of you feel like one of those three areas is, you know, a challenge for you? <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah. So how many people here are still driving? Okay. So very few. I'm in the same boat. I've never driven. So I'll speak very briefly to driving. So when it comes to driving, the reason I think occupational therapists are better at assessing it than your PCP is this. We look at everyday activities. So if I'm looking at your visual skills in reference to driving, I'm going to look at a lot of different things and it's not just the diagnosis. It's never just the diagnosis. I might have you walk through my hospital space and see if you can navigate. Can you respond fast enough to changes in your environment? Because so much of driving is attention and reaction time and energy levels. Those are my number one, two, three things and then throw vision in there. And vision is tied very much so to your ability to react. I'm gonna look at your ability to have, um, see things with low contrast, right? Because you can't control the lighting in the outside environment. And as we all mentioned, lighting is really essential to how much we can see. So maybe you are still driving, but you're only driving in fair weather conditions in familiar environments, et cetera. I'm gonna look at your strength. All those things kind of matter in different ways. There are individuals who have specialized training in driving. They are called your Certified Rehab Driver Specialists, specialists CRDSs. Those can be occupational therapists. They may be rehab professionals of a different background. They are the most intensive driver rehab people you can meet. So they work with people of all different backgrounds, all different disabilities with the goal of returning to drive. They will actually do behind the wheel assessments just like when you took driver's ed maybe as a kid. They have cars where they have the extra set of brakes in it. So the certified driver rehab specialist is going to do an evaluation, look at you as a person, say, based on my clinical assessment off the road, I think we'll be safe enough to try behind the wheel and then really grade that to where you're at. So maybe they just take you to a big empty parking lot and see how you do in that environment. The nice thing about a certified driver's rehab specialist is they're not just pulling your license. It's not an all or nothing. If they think you could learn some skills or have some adaptations to your car that would make you successful driving, 
they're gonna recommend that and give you the tools to get there. So maybe you could scan more efficiently. Um, and what I need to do is bring you in the clinic and work on exercises where you look at a big light board and every time there's a light that flashes, you turn and you touch it and you get really fast at that and you get used to turning your head more because you have lost some of your field of vision. For some people, that might be a bioptic. So bioptics, um, how many people have heard of bioptics? This is, okay, very few of you. So a bioptic is sort of like a bifocal, but for distance vision. So most people are familiar with a bifocal. If you have glasses, you have that little lens at the bottom of your glass, that's for near reading, that's your bifocal. A bioptic is for distance viewing. So if you just have impaired central vision, that detail vision, and you cannot read a road sign at a distance, which obviously you need to do, you might be a good candidate for this. So it's, um, it's, it's called a microscope, but I think it's easier to explain it as a telescope. So it's a little telescope that's mounted to the top of the frame of your glasses. It's only for spot reading. So maybe you're driving down the road, you know there's an exit sign or a construction sign coming up, you briefly dip your head down so you can look now through the top of your glasses as opposed to the bottom to spot that sign, see what it says, and quickly get back to looking through the main part of your lens to get back to driving. That's something that an optometrist would have to say you're a good candidate for, but then they may send you to someone like me to actually teach you how to use your bioptic. And then once you're really good at doing it in the clinic, not behind the wheel, then I might refer you to someone like the driver rehab specialist to get you in the car. So we use a really big team approach to keep you driving as long as it's safe or to give you the recommendations of daytime driving, you know, whatever it is that you need. Most of us though have fallen into that category of we're just not driving. Some of us live in environments where we have public transportation systems. Some of us don't. I know a nice handful of people walked in with white canes. Not everyone has this. So I do want to preface this again as if you are open or already using a white cane, it is your orientation and mobility specialist who are the experts on white cane use and also kind of recommending guide dogs and, and helping you with mobility strategies. Where I come into play is things like sighted guide. I can teach you or your family member how to be a sighted guide. Do you guys know what sighted guide is? Okay, great. So if you need someone to go over strategies like that, occupational therapists can help with that. I can also kind of help you integrate apps, different technologies into your current mobility setting strategies. The other thing is, Unfortunately, the way the US is structured right now, there's a lot more of me than there are O&Ms. So maybe you are going to go see an orientation and mobility specialist, but there's just a big wait list. You could come to an occupational therapist and we could try to patch some skills in there until you can get to the right professional to keep you safe. We can talk about strategies for using public transportation, Ubers, Lyfts, what have you. Now that we have Ubers, Lyfts, rideshares, um, how many people here are using that as an alternative to driving? Does anyone have any good, so sometimes the apps, the apps are somewhat accessible if you know voiceover or, um, I always forget the Android version of that, but for actually spotting 
your Uber or your Lyft? Does anyone have strategies for how they are successfully getting into the right car? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one strategy is to let the driver know ahead of time where you are and let them know that you do have a visual impairment so that they find you. Make sure that you know the name, the license plate, the make model of the car that you're getting into. Have the driver, you know, ask for your name and you also know the name of the driver that's coming to get you. Any other strategies that have been helping with rideshare services? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's Be My Eyes. I call it Ira. I may be wrong. Is it Ira? Anyone? A I Ira. Ira. Okay, good. Yeah. So Be My Eyes and Ira are two really great options if you don't have someone with you who could help you find your ride share or anything else. So Be My Eyes is a free service. Show of hands. Do you guys need this spiel or did you already get it this morning? All right, I'm going down that road. I apologize if you already know about it. So Be My Eyes is a free app service. It is, um, should be downloadable on all devices, iOS and Android. What it is, is there's just volunteers throughout the world who will be your eyes. You log in, you call in, they will look at your environment through your cell phone or smart devices camera. It works really well in your home, it can work in the community. If you're doing something like maybe you wanna know what the expiration date is on your food because no matter how good your magnifier is, no matter how good your lighting is, why is it that every single expiration date is in a different spot, it has the worst contrast, all those things. That's just one example. They are just volunteers, they're not trained. So you have to kind of be your own advocate. You may need to guide someone through what it is that you need from them when you're using that service. It's also free and there's no security. So it's not something you wanna use with your financial information, anything sensitive like that. These are, you know, there are good people in the world, but you don't want them reading your social. The contrast to that is IRA. So IRA is a pay for service that is basically the same thing, except I forget what they call their, uh, staff members, they have a word for it, but they are trained to work with people with visual impairments, same thing. They're using the camera on your phone to look at your environment, to help you with whatever it is that you just need a set of eyes to read. They do have some higher level features, like they can integrate with your Uber and your Lyft, so they could actually call the Uber and Lyft for you, put that information into the app for you, and then help you spot said Uber and Lyft as well once they arrive. Of course, you have to be able to hold your phone up and show the camera around enough so that they can um, perform those functions. If you need help with financial information, medical information, sensitive information like that, there is some type of insurance policy where they, they cannot share that information. They have to uphold your privacy. So that's nice. It is a pay for service. You get the first five minutes free. After that, you can sign up for a different plan where you get X number of minutes free per month, or I guess it's not, it's never free. There's also different places in the community that offer IRA for free. So right now they're offering it here at the conference, I believe. You can get it at Target. There's certain airports that offer it. There's certain universities that offer it. So you can, I say try before you buy. Go online to their website, 
see if there's any place in your area that's offering the free IRA service. Try it out, see what it's like, see if it's something that you need. Or try out Be My Eyes first and think about, hey, this is kind of helpful, but I just need, I need a little bit more or I need to use it in a different way. Those are really nice options. Um, our keynote speaker, what was his name? Chad Foster. Chad. Chad's talked a little bit about strategies for using public transportation. So I always say, let the bus driver know your needs because at least in Pittsburgh, where I'm from, white cane or not seems to mean nothing to them. Um, there's been plenty of times where my bus route has just been completely changed and no one says a word. So it's good to know, let the bus driver or the transit operator know what you need, if you need help knowing what stops coming up, if they've turned off the audio on the bus, can they turn it on so you know what stop you're coming up to? Have there been any changes or detours in your bus route? Know the different apps and systems that work in your city. So each city is different. I can give you no recommendations there, but when I lived in Boston, they had a much better app that would have notifications and pop-ups where I could say, these are the routes that I use. They'd let us know if there was a change in service. They were very good at putting notices up, um, having signs up, having things come up on the app, you know, a week in advance. Pittsburgh and other cities I've lived in, not as much, but call up your local authority and your port authority or your transit provider and see what they can offer to you as an individual with a visual impairment. Most cities do offer free or reduced fares for public transportation. Find out how you get that. Sometimes it may require a doctor's note, a physical evaluation that they can provide in the clinic. Sometimes it's just related to your Medicare status, but know how you can get these services. And if you can get them for less money, you might as well do it. In addition, most insurance providers are starting to offer rideshare services in addition to other public transit services. So insurance is finally realizing that they save money when you're healthy. So they're willing to help you get to the doctor. Call up your member benefits, see if they offer any of that. Sometimes they will pay for your Uber or Lyft to various medical appointments, including therapy appointments with people like myself. But you need to know what it is that you have to submit, how they work, who they work with, et cetera. But call your member benefits. Um, in the member benefits line, there are more insurance companies that are covering assistive technology than there used to be. What I hate about working in the low vision world is so much of the strategies I give people are devices, right? It's a magnifier. It's an app on your phone. It's a pair of glasses. It's something like that. And we all know it's not covered by insurance, right? That's the thing. Call your insurance provider. See if they do actually provide funding for that. Sometimes it's for basic equipment. Like I know my hospital system is also an insurance provider and they are starting to cover what we call bath kits, bath safety kits. So they'll cover things like a shower chair, tub bench, a handheld shower. And they're starting to divert funds into things like a home evaluation for safety. They're also starting to cover things like a small amount of money towards assistive technology, like $100 or $200 that you could put towards an iPad. Be savvy. Be savvy. Figure out where all of your funding options are and just use them. Um, the Office of Vocational Rehab is another wonderful resource. If you qualify for their services, every state has an office. They can provide you with funding, with training, whatever it is to keep you at your job, help you pay for accommodations. 
They're a really lovely resource. They also work with people who are retired. So uh, at least in the state of Pennsylvania, we have a program for adults 55 and older who do not have a goal of returning to work and they can still offer services. One of the things that I really love through OVR is getting your orientation and mobility covered. So you can hopefully qualify for their services. If it's appropriate, they might cover your O&M services as well. So know your resources. Um, any other useful resources that you've come across in your own life to help fund things? I have a question. Yeah. Ooh, that is a great question, and I don't think I know the answer to that. Can you repeat the question? So is OVR, the Office of Vocational Rehab, the same as state services for the blind and visually impaired? And as we're talking about that, um, at least I can speak to what I know about Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. The Office of Vocational Rehab is a state-funded service. That's the umbrella branch. And then within that, there's a division that is specific to those with blind and visual impairment. So you have OVR and then some version of, it's generally an acronym of BBVS, blind, the Bureau of Blindness and Visual Impairment or Services, something like that. So it's worth calling. It's all, I always say it's a free call. It doesn't cost you any money to call. It's a little bit of time. Find out what you qualify for or what you don't. And if it works with your lifestyle, utilize the resources. See what else they can offer you because I only know a fraction of all the services that are out there. Um, and Dana, I have a question. Mm -hmm. And maybe you just answered it, but I want to confirm. So you work at... University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Okay. Where do most OTs work in their communities? Is it a hospital or another kind of institution? Yeah, so great question. So how would you encounter an OT in your life? So it depends on what age you are. If you were a child, you're likely interacting with an occupational therapist in an early intervention setting. So you're, you have a kiddo who is not meeting their developmental milestones in some way. They may have early intervention services come to your home. These are always free services offered through the state. Or you may go to a center for those services. As the child ages up and is in the school system, if their disability impacts their success in school, then they will get flagged for an IEP, an individualized education plan, and they may receive OT services then. I will make a caveat that I myself never received OT services in school because academically I, I've always done fine, despite the visual impairment. So I did manage to get myself OVR services because I was hellbent in driving at 16 and somehow found this resource and got involved with them. But there are a lot of people who fall through the cracks of these services. 
once we become adults, we typically interact with occupational therapists in the hospital system. It's normally from an acute medical event. So maybe you've had a stroke or maybe you've fallen. You um, did just what Chad said and you, you know, missed that 15 foot drop <laughs> and you fell in and now you've broken a leg. Then you're going to meet me, my physical therapy partner. And if you've had any challenges with eating, swallowing or thinking, my speech therapy partner as well in the acute care setting or inpatient rehab. You can also meet us in the outpatient setting or home health setting as well. Um, the telehealth program that I helped create kind of married all of those settings together. So where I work in Pittsburgh, we have an outpatient low vision OT clinic. It's housed right next to our optometrist and ophthalmologist all in the same building. Our doctors know that we exist, so they give us referrals. Ideally, our patients come in, see our low vision optometrist first. He's lovely. He makes sure that you have the best refraction. So he's the guy that's giving you the best glasses, the best magnifiers, whatever it is that you need optically to maximize your vision. Then he'll send the patient to me. So he'll say, you know what? I think this person's best magnification is within a range. And then what my job is, is to say, I know the type of devices we have what's going to work best for your daily life goals. So if you just need to read something really quickly, you could probably use a magnifier, but if you need to do sustained reading for work, then maybe we're going to talk about something like a CCTV or screen reading software. So it's kind of the marriage between this is the best refraction you need, but I need to know what you're trying to use your vision for to help you get the best device and then teach you how to use it because it might seem simple to use a magnifier or another strategy. It's really not. It's incredibly fatiguing. It's tiring. It's hard to learn. There's actually good ways and bad ways to use those devices. And that's what you come to me to learn how to use. We'll also talk about kind of those non-optical strategies. So like I said, maybe it's adding contrast, picking up the best lighting in your house, working on organizing your environment, all of those things are, th are things that I would go over. So um, some simple strategies that I talk, out, talk about a lot are putting toothpaste on a toothbrush. White toothpaste, white toothbrush, white sink, a lot of white. Or maybe you live in a monochrome house where everything is beige, just everything. So how can we add contrast so that you are seeing your couch more effectively? Or maybe in your house you have a really nice tablecloth on your table, but it's got some pretty involved patterns and it makes you lose your plate, your cup, your bowl. Mm -hmm. So those are things that we would talk about in the clinic. Um, I also, with the telehealth program, liked it because we were able to do telehealth home evaluations. So I had my patients or their family members walk the phone through their house and I just said, okay, great, I see your stairs. Are you having issues with their stairs? Do you realize that, do you ever miss a step? Do you not know when you're getting to the top or the bottom? How can we manage that? So easy strategies for that are, number one, add lighting. Make sure you have lighting in your stairwell and handrails. Therapists love handrails. We're big fans of handrails. Make sure you have both of those things. If you're not using a mobility device like a cane or a walker, you may be able to safely add like a little, um, I, don't, I hate to use the word throw rug but like a little bathroom rug on your bottom step so that you know you've hit the bottom. It's a different color. So maybe you have beige steps and you have a burgundy little rug on the bottom. As long as the ends of that rug aren't gonna curl up and then cause you to trip. 
You can also add electrical tape or you can add tape. We love electrical tape because it generally doesn't ruin the finishes on the surfaces in your home. You can add tape to the end of steps. What's becoming more popular now are those nice little um, step runners. So you could rip up the carpet on your steps, have it painted a certain color, add a step runner that's a different color so you can see your steps. You could have some kind, something kind of tactile on your handrail so you know that you're approaching the top or the bottom of your steps. You can count your steps, whatever it is that works for you. Things that we also see in kind of a home safety assessment, how are you doing getting in and out of the tub? So for a lot of people, and especially as we age, when we start to lose our vision, it impacts our, our balance. Does anyone here feel like their balance has gotten worse as their vision has gotten worse? Okay. Unfortunately, the reality is, is that a lot of our balance system is tied into our vision. It's how we know what's upright. It's why when you get off of a boat, you sometimes feel like you're still rocking. Like our vestibular system is that um, internal ear system that pairs with our vision that makes us feel upright and balanced. So one of the things I want to know about you is what's your balance like? Are you having falls to home? Are you having a hard time getting up and down? And I might have you work with my physical therapist partner to really, number one, just strengthen. Strengthen all of your legs, all of your muscles, challenge your balance appropriately, and then work with me to come up with strategies in the home or environment to help make things safer. So maybe it's getting in and out of the tub. People often have more challenges with that and think that you need to get a walk-in shower or do some big home renovation you don't, there's something called a tub bench out there. So it is a chair for the tub. It's got four legs, but it's long like a bench. So two of the legs stay inside the tub. Two of the legs are just outside the lip of the tub. You can sit on the back up, sit on the edge of the tub bench, swing your legs over. You don't have to step over the edge of the tub. It's like getting in and out of a car. So if you're getting into the car, you think of it, you back up, you sit down in the seat, swing your legs in, same idea. So if you're starting to have changes in your balance, you're not feeling as safe, stepping over, making those transitions, I wanna use a multi-modality approach. I wanna change the environment, change your body, you know, and work on what matters to you. Maybe you're like, you know what, sponge baths are great and I don't care. That works for me too. It's, it just comes down to what are all the factors. And for most people, I think if you can afford the co-pays, you have the insurance, you know, there, there's realistic barriers to all of this, but I love being able to work with my other providers to make sure that we're giving you guys the best scope of care. But when that's not possible, be honest with us, be honest with us. Say, I have evaluated you and I'm recommending that you come in twice a week for two months to work on these things. If you can't afford the copay, let me know because then I'm going to change my plan of care to meet your financial barriers. These are realities. So maybe I can think of ways where I'm giving you more home exercises in between so you're not losing the skills, but you're also not paying more out of pocket than you're able to afford. Be your own advocate. That is, I think, probably my number one takeaway of anything that I'm talking about. You know you best. You know where you're at in your life and what you need. The more you can share with me or other professionals, the better I can serve you. Whenever I evaluate my patients, I, I didn't mention this, but I do start with kind of a personal history. I want to know where you live, what your home setup is like. 
Currently, do you need help doing any of your everyday activities? What are those activities? How much help do you need? Of those activities, what ones do you want to be more independent with and what ones are you just welcome and happy to hand over to another family member? Um, do you guys have any questions so far related to OT, safety, daily activity? Go ahead. Uh, I was wanting to ask, you know, we we're talking about finding somebody. Our city isn't that big, but it's, our city isn't that big, but, you know, to find if there is an occupational therapist in town for vision. So would you just call some of the therapy centers where there's a therapist and then if they know or... Great question. So there's a, a couple, there's a couple different ways you can find us. So all occupational therapists are technically given a generalist training and should be able to offer something related to your vision. But I will say, I, it, and it's something that I'm advocating within my own profession to change, that for whatever reason, professionals think that vision is somehow different than all these other things we work on. So what I'm saying is, is everything has a caveat. There are providers that have certified credentials that you can look for. So within my professional organization, they're called SCLVs, Specialty Certification in Low Vision. So those are occupational therapists who've done extra training. They also may be CLVTs, Certified Low Vision Therapists. There are websites that you can look on to see if there are any OTs in your area that are listed with those credentials, but I think the reality is just calling your office and asking if there's anyone who feels competent with this. If there's not just a low vision clinic in your area that has OT in-house, I would then look to your neuro providers. So those who specialize in neurological disorders, stroke, brain injury, we often um, when we have a brain injury, people lose vision in a very different way than a change in the eye structure, but functionally it looks the same. So if you don't have a list of low vision OTs in your area, I would then reach out to your neuro clinics and I would reach out to your optometrist to see if they can give you a recommendation to someone who has more specialized training. And there's another question in the front. Earlier, you'd ask about if anybody else had any other suggestions about helping. I've lived with RP for a long time, and it's got worse, and I've had to teach most of myself to, my, to myself everything because we're in a very remote area, rural. One thing that's really helped me since I can't see too much is my Alexa. Uh, she does everything for me. <laughs> She keeps my calendar for me. Um, she tells my, she's my timer. She's my alarm clock. Uh, she's about everything for me. You can ask her also. I have the small one with no, I mean, with no uh, thing. I have a couple that have a, a screen on them. You know, we can, she also can call for me on the phone. My family, my son is re, um, He's programmed her to call any of my family members. I just ask her. I don't even have to call her on the phone, but she is a great help. You know, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't live without her, to tell you the truth. <laughs> 
I'm so glad you mentioned that. So I wanted to ask everyone what their favorite apps and smart devices are before I open it up to the floor. Um, to what you were saying with the Alexa, the show and tell is a really great version as well because it has a screen and it has the capability to read certain products and labels to you. You just show the product to the screen and it'll read out loud. What I love about the Alexa is it is such a user-friendly, universally designed product. It is, not, it is made to be used without vision. There's nothing fancy that you need to learn, and it can pair and sync with so many devices in your home. You could have a really smart house. You could have a thermostat that's connected to your Alexa. They make little outlet plugs, so if you have a device that's just an on-off, you could tell Alexa to turn on the coffee maker. Now they have um, Bluetooth-capable Instapots and air fryers that possibly will pair with Alexa. I had a patient who had a smart oven that she could voice operate. So there's such a big push for tech to be more accessible and voice operated. And for so many people with visual impairment, it's a really nice place to go if you're open to that and if you're willing to have the, um, if you're able to afford those devices. And they are coming down in price. But are there other apps or devices that have, and they don't have to be high tech, but any other apps or devices that work really well for you in your life? And there's a um, question in the back or comment, I should say. So this is something you all may know, but very low tech, those little bump dots that are sticky on the back and clear or colored, and you can put them on wherever so you can feel it. So my oven, speaking of ovens, is a, is a dumb oven. <laughs> and and it um, I, you can't see anything. You can't. None of the. It was designed by a man. Excuse me. <laughs> anyway, when I finally got the notion to put the bump dots on there, that's great. Now you can just feel and know where to push to start, and you know where the high is and all of that. So those have been very helpful in the kitchen. And they seem to work fine with the heat. The heat of yeah. the oven hasn't made them slide at all on well, you? Well, no, because I'm just putting them at the back. Okay. You know, the way you're not on the burner part. The thing is, my oven is, um, it's, the old ovens still had knobs that were tactile. And they had the little yeah. places as you turned the knob, it would kind of stop. This one is new, but the whole surface is flat. Mm -hmm. So, yep. you know, you guys have probably experienced this. It's not great for visual challenge because you can't feel any difference between any, you know. So, yeah, you just have to put the bump dots on, like, say, the, the five in the middle of the keypad so then you know where the other numbers are and on the start and, on, you know, that kind of thing. You can oh, just, yeah, you could just go on Amazon. Amazon. They're, like, $10 for a whole bunch, and they come in different size. Bump dots? Bump dots. The Bump reason dots. I asked about the heat was because depending on how your oven is situated, sometimes the knobs are right above the oven. So mm -hmm. when you're preheating the oven, the knobs themselves can get a little bit warm. If you're worried about things sliding or you try the bump dots and that adhesive just does not work as well on your um, kitchen appliance, there's something called high marks as well, which is just puffy paint from back in like the 80s and 90s from craft stores, except it's made of a different material so it adheres to appliances better. Mm -hmm. Bump dots or high marks, puffy paint, 
there or nail polish. If, if you're to the point where you just need really good contrast, but you don't need the tactile feature, sometimes nail polish will do the trick. But putting things on dials, on the settings on your washer, on your dryer, on your oven, on your microwave, all of those are places where you can add a dot in. What I will caution you is back to what I've been saying. Be your own advocate. Make sure you're controlling where these things are. Do not put a bump dot on every single number on your microwave. That's not going to help you. You know, you really only need a bump dot on your start button, maybe your 30-second button, mm -hmm. things like that. So just I like think it on about the five it. because then, you know, if you know where the five is, you know where all the other numbers around it are. Yes. So. And just, Dana, just to let you know, we have about six or seven minutes left. So. Okay, so probably have time for maybe two two comments or questions. I have a, a quick question. So I know that Uber and Lyft in writing say that they accept guide dogs. The experience that this son of mine has had has been not only terrible, but like vulgar and them driving off with his stuff in the car. And I've complained to Uber and Lyft mm -hmm. And they say the same thing. Well, give us the, you know, tell us the number, but no, it's, it's never changed. And so I'm just wondering, like, any suggestions or strategies? Because that is insane. Like, we had to get a, an Uber to go to the airport to come here. The first thing he said was, oh, my God, are they going to let the dog in? Which I feel like shouldn't be a thing. Like, what is that? So it's a right, though. There was a thing I saw one time about the man that caused that to be a legal right if you're blind that you So it is covered under the ADA, but that doesn't mean that it works that way in practice. Does any, and I'm going to actually open this one up to the floor because I have heard of that. Does anyone have any tips that have worked in their own lives for making sure that they are not discriminated against for having a guide dog? So there is that exhibit booth on guide dogs. They may be a really good resource. I can make some guesses, but because I've personally never had a guide dog, um, but, but know how humanity works, I would probably start with, with them to see if they have better resources. I know for breastfeeding moms, this is what they do. There's a whole camp of people who want to breastfeed in public, and they have a little card that has printed out the rights of women in breastfeeding. You could try something like that as well, where you have that act, because it is, it, it is, it's covered by the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, you are allowed to have a service dog in all of these environments. You could have something in writing. Would that change maybe five to 10% of those drivers' opinion? Maybe. Is it gonna fix everything? Probably not, but that would be another suggestion. Should you have to do that? Absolutely not. Um, we need to work on, on advocacy at a, at a larger scale, of course. Solve the problem. If you do encounter any problem, uh, and that's based on my experience with my work or the product of collection for ADA work, uh, complaints is you gotta make sure you complain to DOJ. Uh, All ADA in America, no matter what state, city, or government department of justice, once you make a complaint, they have to activate, and the vendor or the restaurant or, or the hotel, whoever has to comply. They can file it in court, 
they will never win. They will have to, so if we complain um, to, to, to the proper, uh, they, will, they will reach out to Uber, they will reach out to Well, it's been a pleasure to get to speak with all of you today. Um, I hope you have a better understanding of what occupational therapy is, how you can reach out to those professionals, and also maybe walked away with a couple tips to make your life a little bit easier. Thank you for coming. That was awesome, Dana. Thanks for all that great information. I want to... Um, let everyone know our next session is a science plenary session on genetic testing, counseling, and my retina tracker. It's at 420 at Fiesta 5 and 6, so right down the hall. And uh, thank you again, Dana. This was wonderful.